Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clever. I'm Caleb Meyer. And I'm Larissa Whitaker. Because the show is so new, we want to warn you, spoilers ahead for Our Flag Means Death. So if you haven't watched it yet, please treat yourself, go have some fun, it's on HBO Max, and then come back and join us for this conversation. It also goes down so smooth. It's like half-hour format episodes, which is kind of unusual for a lot of things that are like long-form storytelling on streaming. I think we're kind of used to 40-minute to an hour-long format, but yeah it, yeah, it is so easy to binge. And it's only 10 episodes, so... It's a nice little commitment. You're not going to be sitting there for hours and hours. It goes by so quickly. One thought I had just looking at the different directions we wanted to take this. We all are coming into this conversation about pirates. How did it take us 23 episodes to finally talk about pirates and storytelling breakdown? But here we are. We're going to be spending some time on them. Yeah, especially given the storytelling breakdown crew as present today's personal history with pirates, which we'll be able to dive in soon. Which also... <laughs> is most of where my research is coming from because uh, I've had an absolutely bananas month and didn't really have a lot of time to do some extra research. But then you're coming at this, he said, looking at Larissa from the perspective of the show. Yes. Caleb, you did a lot of digging into some pop culture pirate history, which mm -hmm. will be a lot of fun. And I can't believe we're doing this, but I have another research paper <laughs> <laughs> from over half my life ago at this point. And uh, we'll see what seventh grade Ben had to say. Yeah. Because the show is so easy to binge all at once, I feel like it's pretty easy to get a quick reaction in response. If you had to summarize your experience with the show into one word, what would you choose? Hmm. I don't know. That's hard. I, the, yeah. the first word that popped into my head was comfort or oh, comforting. Yeah. Yeah. I think I watched it in like two sittings, something like that. It wasn't very many, but I was just like curled up in my blanket watching it. And I was like, this is this is very fun. I like this. I guess one word that just pops into my head reflecting on it is bright. Mm. I think both in a reflection of how Steed Bonnet contrasts with every world that he's in. He's, he's just a very colorful human being. And then you have the fact that it's not shot with the intention of being heightened or with the intention of hiding or using the shadows to its advantage. It's not trying to be an over-the-top adventure uh, with something that we might associate with like Pirates of the Caribbean. It's yeah. very much being its own thing, and you get to see the deck of the Revenge and other ships and other settings in full detail, and it was pleasing to watch in that regard as well. Yeah, a really pretty show. Mm-hmm. I agree. I don't know if I have a word. I think that I uh, felt a bunch of different feelings in having watched the show in so many different directions. And I think that there's a lot of sincerity. Caleb, you mentioned before when we were talking about it, the word that came to mind was respect, like how respectfully the show treats its characters and their relationships. And that was something that was really refreshing for me. And I felt like more of a person after having watched it because, like you said, Ben, with these like larger than life set pieces, even though they have these elements that are so much larger than life, it all feels grounded in a really true human story. Well, now I don't know how true, like historically, but true to like the human spirit. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and just the fact that the characters aren't there to serve some grander machinations it's the it's the stories are focused on them there's still violence but it's not gratuitous i mean there's still there's so many different ways in which our flag means death 
balances a lot of elements that you can pack into a 10 episode pirate show very well what i like about it is that the characters aren't plot devices Mm -hmm. like they're all treated as real characters with dreams and desires and they react to things in a human way one of my favorite i think examples of that is when uh frenchie and we john feeney get the room on the ship i love that and they're like we're gonna have to decorate it and like where are people gonna sit when they come visit Mm -hmm. and we john feeney's like why why would people come over well that's what you do (laughs) that's what people do when you have a space they come visit and you i would never expect that exchange to happen in like a show about pirates but it did and it's such a human experience like you can see people two new roommates having that conversation yeah and i think it also gives you the opportunity i feel like you get so much information about frenchie and we john feeney just based on how they respond to that moment i feel like there's a whole life that we could get to explore with each of these characters should the show continue fingers crossed surprised your one word wasn't buttons oh that's what i was gonna say good one (laughs) well that brings us right into the next part uh ben and caleb have already gotten to hear a little bit about how passionately i love buttons (laughs) may i ask the two of you who's your favorite character from the show i think my favorite character is fane he's blackbeard's crew member he's like one of the lieutenants for izzy hands he only shows up a couple times but every time he showed up I just enjoyed his presence on screen. He's this big, scary, tough biker looking dude, but he's very like sweet and is like, oh, I had a dog that I cared about and you made me kill it. (laughs) There's a gentleness to him. Mm -hmm. It's when they're going to, they have to cut Lucius's finger off and he's like, you can't cut his fingers off. He has the fingers of an artist. (laughs) That's so nice. Oh, goodness. That's a tough one for me. Just because I can appreciate so much of the interplay between the different characters involved, and, and especially just like the way they interact or the things they they bring out from one another, everything from Black Pete's early calls for mutiny <laughs> to I can appreciate Frenchie. Just watching Joel Fry get to go from who was overall a very one note character when he was on Game of Thrones to getting so much to do as he's like a bard and also the best seamstress on the crew and also a conspiracy theorist when you hear him talking about cats. It, it yeah. just, there are so many fun layers to him. I, I, I enjoy him immensely. <laughs> so, yeah, Frenchie's probably a front runner. 
Although he's one of those where, again, it, it depends on the interplay between other crew members. Buttons is funny in total isolation. He can just be doing whatever he is doing, and it is hilarious. I agree. Buttons is his own man. I enjoy Buttons. Like, I don't even, I just like him. I like him a lot. I like how passionate he is about basking in moon glow. And I feel like I intuitively understand what he seeks in that. He's an honest man, completely willing to share his story with other people. As in when they go to plan a f***ery. Can I call it that on this? Yeah. So when they go to plan a f***ery and Buttons offers his truth that he yearns to make sweet love to the sea. I just like that. I think that's so charming. In conclusion, (laughs) (laughs) Buttons is the best one. In my opinion. I don't have anything educated to say about him. I just like him. I think he's charming. Buttons is kind of that like final form of that archetype in pirate movies, which is that old guy on the ship (laughs) who's been at sea for 50 years and I've seen things you wouldn't believe. Kind of like Gibbs in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Yes. Where he knows all the old tales about the sea and he believes in hexes and curses and stuff like that. Yeah, that's a fair comparison. A hex on E. (laughs) Well, and just the fact that, I mean, yeah, you and Bremner and just the accent they brings to, like, it's so thick. He's almost like a Shakespearean character. He is. Mm. Yeah. Especially with what he goes through with Carl Mm. and how seriously and since a word that comes to mind for me of how the show relates to its characters is what dignity everyone is given. Even Carl, because while like other shows could play the moment that the bird is murdered by a whip as a joke. And this show chose not to, even though it's a comedy, like Mm -hmm. it was treated with sincerity that a member of their crew or their family was lost. I think there's something to say about that. Especially, and granted, I I am saying this coming off of a pilot rewatch. So at this point, it's the only episode I've seen twice. And the fact that Buttons is loyal to Bonnet from the very beginning. Yeah. He's the one who tells him about the mutiny. And he says, mutiny's (laughs) a brewing captain. (laughs) I watched the show three times. I could watch it about seven more. Can you do that again with the accent? No, I can't do accents. (laughs) Mutiny's a brewing captain. Yeah, no, he's got... Oh gosh, pretty just, thick one there. Yeah, you and Bremner. Oh, let me. I, I texted it to you guys last night. Just the, where's the line? Oh yes, I liked it. They all end in terrible bloodshed. Maybe snowflakes aren't the best comparison. <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah, just endless gold. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I like goodness. how he's honest about stuff all the time too. Yeah, Buttons has no pretenses. Yeah, if someone asks him something, he's just gonna tell him how it is. <laughs> that's my favorite character then i will also share who my least favorite character is controversial in the fan community my least favorite is calico jack and i know a lot of people have it out for izzy hands but i think calico jack is much harder to redeem or have compassion for thoughts (laughs) i mean i agree i think he i think his purpose in the story is to be that like gross not appeal but like that side of like an extreme yeah, like an extreme, because his whole he, he draws Blackbeard back to his like self-destructive lifestyle and behavior. But you can you can see that sort of appeal that he has, at least to Blackbeard. Like when they're together, he gets to be totally wacky and free, and he can do whatever he wants to do because there's no consequences. We're pirates. <laughs> 
It's like that temporary relief of denying accountability when that just has long-term consequences for all involved, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is where we can maybe start diving into the research a little bit. It was an interesting choice with their interpretation of Calico Jack, just in that, for the most part, especially for if you only really have a general interest in pirates and and are only a little bit familiar with some of the history, inevitably each pirate is only going to be remembered for like one thing, maybe a few things if they were particularly of note, like Blackbeard comes to mind on that one, but you'll have like, okay, let's go through some, both nonfiction and fiction. John Paul Jones fought for the colonies during the American revolution or someone. He was also a pirate to the British. Yes. He was. (laughs) Yeah. He was a privateer. Yeah. Francis Drake, also a privateer. The pirate who fights for, who's basically commissioned by the government to continue being a pirate, but only attacking that government's enemies. That's what they become at the end of the season when they get captured by the British. They're privateers? Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm. Instead of us having to deal with you, we're going to put you back out to sea and let Sick you live. Sick our pirates on Yeah, you. <laughs> on the condition that you only attack the French and the Spanish. Mm. Yeah, that really is how it worked. And then you have... Again, just going down the list, again, fiction and nonfiction. Long John Silver, most everybody will just remember him for missing one leg. And then you have Blackbeard's got a few more elements to his mystique, just in terms of his look and a lot of which actually Taiki Watiti's portrayal of the character addresses in terms of just how ridiculous it would be to have so many guns and knives <laughs> on him at one time. And then Calico Jack kind of gets the reputation of, for lack of a better phrase for it, being the ladies' man of the pirates. Because you can't really tell the story of Calico Jack without also telling the story of the women that ran with him being uh, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, which was what the research paper was about when I was in seventh grade. I I did a short, small paper on Blackbeard, and then the multiple-page research paper was on Calico Jack. There's some elements that are there, mainly just, like, we find him... In it's I believe it's the eighth episode of the series when we first meet him, and he's been <laughs> had his own crew mutiny out from under him. So this is Calico Jack at a low point, mm. and Calico Jack became a captain also by democratic vote of his crew. So yeah. it's kind of a weird reflection of what we know about the historical Calico Jack. But then, whereas you might come away from the historical calico jack and going okay suave figure although there is a little bit of a a hint of jealousy in some of the storytelling because at one time he was quite jealous that Anne bonnie the woman that was on his crew was spending a lot of time with a sailor who had recently joined up with them named mark reed and so he's trying to figure out what's going on there and then realizes oh Anne bonnie is spending so much time with mark reed because mark reed is actually mary reed in disguise so And saw through it immediately, and the two bonded from there, and then they both fought with Calico Jack uh, until, I mean, all of them met not-so-pleasant ends when all was said and done. I think one of them died in prison, another uh, was missing when all was said and done. I could actually probably page through this thing and get the specific answer later on in our conversation. But then you have the complete opposite of that, because Will Arnett's Calico Jack is just an unrepentant (laughs) But if you're going to cast Will Arnett, yeah, lean into that. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I mean, even mm. even down to his 
portrayal of like Lego Batman. He's always going to lean into that a little bit. <laughs> I have a question. Mm-hmm. So uh, seventh grade Ben, I have two questions for him. Okay. One, what was his impression of Cal Kojak? Two, I don't know if seventh grade Ben can answer this. The question is, how were these pirates' histories told? Was it like Steed Bonnet asking Lucius to pen for him how he <laughs> describes his own journey? Or was it more of a historical account? That's just it. I mean, and I am, I preface this with not a historian, wasn't then, <laughs> am not now. But you would have, however, events end up in the historical record. You're going to have some written accounts. You're going to have some word of mouth that then eventually becomes written accounts. But it gets fuzzy with characters in our history. I mean, even like from Calico Jack and Blackbeard to the likes of George Washington, Mm -hmm. there's so much folklore and legend that gets baked into what we know of some of these older historical figures. And then there's obviously an appeal this kind of goes back to your first question when it's the perceived outlaw or the person that can do whatever they want. Yeah. And this is also on the back of pirates of the Caribbean, which I think came out when I was nine. So at this point I'm only four years removed from that franchise being as big as it was at that time. That's amazing. In 1724, a book was published in Britain called a general history of the robberies and murders of the most notorious pirates, which I think was a pretty good seller at the time Mm. but people were telling you know the stories of these people as they lived they've been part of the cultural zeitgeist you know for centuries as long as they've been yeah in some ways especially given how much time we've already spent on gangsters and gangster movies they were kind of society's version of that when it was totally different mediums completely different sections of the world and of society but here's this collection of individuals living outside the standards of the society and we find them immensely interesting you can kind of put them in a similar category at that point well yeah i think anyone who didn't like the status quo basically down with the establishment would be drawn to these sorts of people because they live outside mm. you know the punk laws and pirates basically yeah, yeah they were kind of punk rockers you can also get some of that with like just the soundtrack of our flag means death <laughs> i still like and i'm sure we'll get there and talking about the context in more detail but my favorite shot from the entire show is just the long tracking shot following Button's butt as he's running <laughs> naked across the deck, avoiding British sailors. And he runs by Frenchie, who's just playing his instrument. And then Frenchie just gets tackled out of frame. Masterpiece. Wow, the chain by Fleetwood Mac is playing. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Looking at it again, historical record versus. I'm paging through this magazine project from my seventh grade year, which also this is where uh, I need to give the hugest shout out uh, to anyone who remembers Mrs. Reber, uh, who taught at St. Vincent's during that time. Uh, She is no longer with us, uh, sad to say, but uh, if you were a student of hers or her family or you're listening to this, uh, just know Mrs. Reber was an amazing literature and English teacher and made an impact because when you are that young and you have teachers that believe in your skill sets in writing and storytelling that's something that's going to continue so it's very easy to look back even to like my junior high years and kind of see what impacts were made that's amazing between that and like the morning show media stuff it's like okay yeah this trajectory makes a lot of sense oh my goodness 
yeah just like little things here just like looking through like the blackbeard stuff and it's like oh he was six foot five which is something historically of note because people were not that that tall tall back then the average height was nowhere close to that you're going to stand up head and shoulders above the rest at that point let's skip to the end here how did they die Uh Uh, that's where i enjoy the creative liberties that the show takes and I'm curious to see how they manage that. This is my theory Okay. for the end of the show if they get to this point. Yes. Because historically, in the real life, Blackbeard's death was very mythologized. Mm-hmm. He was chased down by the British. And he I mean, he was on this tiny ship with like not a very big crew. And he had this big saber duel with some captain whose name I don't remember. But supposedly he, he killed Blackbeard, then cut off his head. And his body, Blackbeard's headless body, swam around the ship three times to, like, curse them. So my theory is that if we get to that point, it's going to be a f***ery. I sure hope so. They're going to fake Blackbeard's death. (laughs) And then, like, oh, his head's off. And then he's swimming around with, like, his head covered or whatever. I really hope that they go there. Like Alice Cooper. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) That comparison works way too well. (laughs) Just and also the fact that, like, both Alice Cooper and Taika Waititi seem like they would just be the nicest people on the planet when you're interacting with them in day to day. Like, cause it's again, it it's catches you off guard when later on, when he has shaved the beard and it's just, no, it's just kind and pleasant. And you're used to seeing Taika Waititi's face and other things. Uh, and then, but then he could also just my dreams. be spectacularly <laughs> intimidating with the beard. Oh my goodness. So Jack and his entire crew were captured, sentenced to be hanged, usual punishment for pirates. Bonnie and Reed both claimed to be pregnant so that they would not be hanged because their children were innocent. Reed died in prison before her child was born. And and Bonnie, I don't I think was the one who went missing. And could have died in prison, but no one knows she disappeared from the historical record completely. Mm-hmm. So if there is a likely survivor from that trio, she's the one goodness we leapt off of the calico jack elements and then dove into the historical record and some pop culture elements along the way like you wouldn't have expected this kind of story from a pirate like you wouldn't expect a story about two men finding each other in love to be set in the backdrop of a pirate adventure at least i didn't expect that yeah the show is gonna live or die by how much chemistry Taika Waititi and Reese Darby have together. And they've been working together for a long time time, Yeah, And so they have a ton of chemistry together and it is so good. I mean, yeah, even going back to, I mean, what comes to mind for me is what we do in the shadows. Mm -hmm. Werewolves, not swearwolves. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, didn't they, I think that was maybe in one of the podcasts or videos you sent me about our flag means death, but, I think they sort of used that character to inspire his portrayal of Steve Bonnet. I think I know what interview you're talking about because I listened to it again today. It was Pop Culture Happy Hour's discussion of Our Flag Means Death. And what they pointed out was how grateful they were that someone in America finally figured out how to use Reese Darby effectively. Yes. It's just so amazing to watch him grow throughout the series. I mean, Yeah. I mean, for a short 10-episode run from terrified pirate captain again the first episode is coming to mind very easily where a british officer dies accidentally after he just wanted to use a stun move to knockout move (laughs) to the just crying for help as he's trying to keep the books from falling off the shelf during a storm (laughs) 
and you're and you're starting to unpack some of the trauma from his past, but you don't have all the details yet. It, it just works so well. And then at the end, he's a man without his riches on his little boat, his dinghy, just out to sea, only with himself and confident and content in that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and just and then the fact that the show really drives home the fact that it's him figuring out what he probably on some level already knew the home he left was never home in the first place. Mm. And just from the arranged marriage to you see him longing to go out to sea, become a pirate and then realizing once he's back in it towards the end of the, the season, just Nope, this isn't for me. And he's content to let everyone there be happy without him. Cause for a while there they they were <laughs> mm-hmm. and it would make more sensitive for him to be where he is happy as well i agree and i think that was such a necessary part of steed's journey to face his past and to have closure there um and also to be accountable for how he treated the people that he left and i can see how meeting them and being able to see them not just through how he needed them but through how they are without him allowed him to have the freedom he needed to be who he was on his own or who he was in this new life versus having that part of him that throughout the whole series from the first episode to the end is consciously or unconsciously wrestling with the guilt of how his actions affected the people around him versus like moving to a place of agency in his life. Let's talk about, again, we've already hinted at the chemistry, just the relationship and the dynamic between bonded and blackbeard because for a short run time especially because i don't think we even get to see blackbeard until the third episode yep. if i'm recalling correctly yeah. they do spend... you don't even see his face in the third episode yeah mm-hmm. there you spend time getting to know steed bonnet which works out wonderfully and then blackbeard comes along and we're following the narrative of the two of them together it blows my mind how effectively they're able to you kind of see them bringing out different qualities in one another and the growth in that relationship. I like how natural it feels. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's a very well written relationship. It's not like, Oh, they see each other for the first time and immediately there's sparks flying and they're in love. Like they're very, at least Steed is super unsure of things. I mean, he doesn't even know he's Blackbeard at first. He's just like, okay, you're this guy on my ship <laughs> and Blackbeard is intrigued and in trying to figure out, okay, why is this guy a pirate but i love just how they how they play off of each other and switching outfits when they meet that was so cute it was cute i think that there is a palpable chemistry from the very beginning even though i agree that it does slowly build but i was trying to talk my brother into watching it when i was home a couple weekends ago and i was like nick you gotta watch this pirate show and he's like oh i don't know And i was like come on man you gotta watch this pirate show (laughs) and he watched the first three episodes and then i had to leave and i was like are you gonna keep watching it and he was like oh no maybe and i was like well what do you think's happening in the show and i he did watch the fourth episode and i was he's like i think he kind of likes him around for some reason i'm like you should really see where that goes and he has not watched it. We're calling you out, Nick. I know. Watch the rest of it. <laughs> well, he he is kind of mirroring my viewing experience because I was taking it kind of slowly initially. Of course, I think that's also because I was trying to watch it like in the middle of a week. But then by the time I got to like the final five, I burned through the rest of the show. Everything from the comedic beats it hits to making wonderful use of 
the entire crew at your disposal. Like, like there's just there's not a flat character in the mix. There's no one that's there for just a throwaway gag or like one scene where they have a couple funny lines and then we're done with them. Like it's just it does so much with the characters it has to work with. And I can just again appreciate like not just Taiki Watiti as an actor playing Blackbeard, but also as a director thinking back to the pilot, because there are so many wonderful little things that that first episode sets up from the focus on Jim's dagger to the fact that you do see the seagull on Button's head during the final <laughs> shot as it's panning up. Yep. You see Carl and it's the shot. It goes from Button's in his hammock with Carl on his head and then panning up the mast where you see all the flags and then credits roll. Ben, I'd like to touch on something you mentioned there. A word that came to mind was commitment. Like, mm-hmm. I get the sense that the show really feels committed to its characters and to the story it's telling. Are there other places where you see commitment arise within the story, or is that a stretch? I mean, there's commitment between the characters. You know, the various relationships going on on the ship between Black Pete and Lucius, where, you know, the first time that's introduced, it's almost played as like a relationship for fun like they're Mm -hmm. not super invested in each other it's just like playful and casual it's a playful casual thing but then you know they slowly start to introduce pet names into their relationship and then by the end it's very clear that like they care a lot about each other and they're in a committed relationship and the same thing with jim and olawande it like builds but they're committed to each other the whole time yeah that's very true i agree and this is where, like, we're going to tie one episode into another. And we already did mention the the fact that you can see some parallels between the pop cultural significance of pirates and the pop cultural significance of gangsters. And the fact that you're going to look back at media from the 70s, thinking back to our previous episode about The Godfather. And it's like, okay, we should probably have a conversation about toxic masculinity where we're talking about why why there's an audience of when we saw it teenage males that are thoroughly enjoying this film and then we get media in 2022 where our flag means death does a beautiful job of talking about toxic masculinity and we see how it's viewed through several different lenses as we see steve bonnet's interaction with blackbeard and then how their dynamic changes when calico jack is introduced into the mix and there's just a lot of different relationships that make it so that that theme resonates very well within the show. It seems like it's a prison, that toxic masculinity. Like, I feel like the show takes that idea and just the idea of how limiting it is to try and enact your life through society's expectations or the expectations of your peers or the expectations of who you are based on how you're born or how you've grown up or what you've chosen to do. And I think that the one, just like you said, Ben, that is brought so fully into focus is toxic masculinity and what it looks like to be a man or to be a pirate and how that all plays out into their lives. And I think that there's something universal in the way it explores how you navigate a life wherein you don't fit within society's expectation of how you ought to be and how limiting that can feel and what paths to freedom look like in that situation. Steed Bonnet breaks that right out of the gate because we're watching him go against so many of the conventions that we associate with pirates. But even at the most basic level, because the first episode, again, I'm referencing it so much because it's I watched it <laughs> literally last night. You have the contrast with 
Bonnet, not with Blackbeard, but with Captain Nigel, who, while he is British Navy, is absolutely a bully in power. And so he fits the conventions that we'd associate with the the ugliest of pirate captain. He's the same way. While the niceties are different and the British naval men are going to carry themselves very differently from the pirates, again, it's not who you are, it's how you treat people. And that's where we see a difference put on display right from the beginning. Well, that prison that you mentioned earlier, I think you can see that in the first episode with everyone on the ship, like the whole crew, because, you know, at first they're like, ah, we don't want to make these flags. This is stupid. We should mutiny. We should get rid of Steed. He's like the worst captain ever. Black Pete is the one leading that. And his whole characterization in the first couple episodes is he always lies and says he was part of Blackbeard's crew and like, Hypes himself up as this. Yeah, he's posturing. He's peacocking. He's like, I'm a big, scary pirate. We, John Feeney, has this like arson obsession in the first episode, which I don't know if that comes back, but he's very like, they're all very violent. Mm -hmm. They're like fitting the traditional roles of pirates. But as Steed, with his beautiful, like accepting nature, sort of seeps into everyone in the crew, they like are more comfortable stepping out of that mold and being the people that they actually are. He's a leader in that way. Like, even though he's so bad at at first, he lacks all skill necessary to effectively lead in a piratey type way. He's really crushing it as far as, like, how to be a person type way. (laughs) Or invitations of different ways to be a person. Mm -hmm. You're going to accomplish more being authentically bad than inauthentically good at something. And just in terms of the foundation that you're that you're building on. That's an interesting distinction, Ben. Can you say that again? When we think about Steed Bonnet and when we think about Blackbeard, earlier I mentioned how Steed Bonnet kind of comes to recognize the truth that he probably knew all along. His home was not a home to him. Be, being out of the sea is where he really wants to be. Even though, again, when we're introduced to him as an audience, it's kind of like, really? <laughs> like, we're just counting. It's like, this show's on HBO. We're just counting down the episodes until he inevitably dies. <laughs> But then you have Blackbeard who realizes, oh, I'm not interested in living up to my own legend anymore. Even though there are other characters, Black Pete initially, Izzy later throughout much of the season, who hold the legend and what they view as Blackbeard and everything associated with what that legend entails. They hold that in higher regard than they hold any relationship with any actual person in their lives. Again, it just shows the power that people are going to follow inauthentic what they perceive to be right. Mm. It's always unpleasant to encounter your own insecurities. Ah. And Bonnet wears them on his very (laughs) well-made silk sleeves. (laughs) But and, And then in that regard, the rest of the crew opens up and follows him and yeah it's just you get to know them all in ways that you wouldn't if they had a much more violent captain i mean even going beyond the confines of our flag means death if they had a captain the likes of barbosa or davy jones or any number of terrible pirate captains that we see throughout pirates and pop culture against the flying dutchman yep yep (laughs) you're good you're good (laughs) Steve Bonnet bucks the trend in every way. Is another way to say what you're saying, Ben, that so many people started to 
Izzy Hands in particular so committed to the idea of who Blackbeard is that he misses the reality of the person in front of him. And even, I'd argue, of Izzy Hands himself. Like, he is so disconnected from himself based on his commitment to this idea of what a good pirate looks like and who he's chosen to serve. I don't think he ever accepted the reality of who Ed is. Yeah. Wait, you're saying you don't think Izzy Hands ever accepted the reality? I agree. I think Izzy sees Blackbeard as this ideal, like, pirate, and he's trying to strive to be that. That's what he's committed his life to, is he's a member of Blackbeard's crew. That's the main thing that defines him. So if Ed isn't Blackbeard, then Ed isn't worth anything to him. Which is sad. That sounds like such a lonely way to move through the world. It's a very transactional way to move through the world, too. It's like... If you don't give me the thing that I want, then you have no purpose or place in my life. That's a bummer. But, I mean, you can see in the show how damaging that is to Izzy, too, because, I mean, Blackbeard cuts off his own toe and feeds it to him. And he prefers it that way. And he likes it that way, yeah. (laughs) I like it better when Ed is holding socks. What surprises you about the way the show manages these? Because we talked about toxic masculinity as it was upheld and not fully, like, it wasn't critically considered in The Godfather necessarily. It was more of like, this is how things exist and what we're moving toward. Whereas here, it is encountered through a really critical lens, I'd argue, Mm -hmm. or taking a step back from, like, how things are versus how you want them to be. And I find that refreshing. Yeah. But I, especially in a genre of pirates, which usually associate with all those traits of, like, being swashbuckling and inconsiderate. <laughs> Shirtless men saving scantily clad women. Yeah. yeah. The show does put a nice button <laughs> on button. the, yeah, on this particular issue because of the way it ends. And I know it would be very easy to say, like, if you want the show to have a happy ending, stop at episode nine. If you want the show to have a message that really well and this is where again like if it didn't get a second season they did end on a very good note i know it doesn't seem like that but bear with me we end with steed bonnet embracing the truth that was true all along the fact that he wants to go out and be a pirate and is willing to do it at the cost of everything that was a part of his life before he's comfortable with who he is without the expectation like he isn't no he He's no longer weighed down by what people expect from him. Mm -hmm. And by contrast, we see Blackbeard going into a very dark place at the end of the season. Yes. And getting back to the legend that he is associated with. And where are those toxic traits at their most powerful when there is an absence of love? Mm. Once he no longer has Steed in his life, he goes back to that and then some. And that's just a very good way of showing, hey, you don't actually want to treat other people this way. You just don't think you're worthy of anything. And this is the only version of you that is allowed to exist. Yeah. And that message showing how, again, this is how Blackbeard got to this place. And we've seen the whole journey that's come before. It really drives the point home in an interesting way because we can see with a real loving connection to others or to another in someone's life, 
you can become a better version of yourself. That invitation of softness and gentleness that he then feels comfortable carrying with himself and others. And in Steed, like lighting that path or being a place where that can be nourished and fostered in Ed's life, very much a lighthouse. Yeah. I had not thought about that before. Yeah. Well, and he, Steed kind of shows the path that Ed needs to take to like deal with his trauma because they both have things in their past that they're ashamed of. Steed abandoning his family, Ed killing his own father. Steed goes back and confronts that and comes to terms with it. Ed hasn't done that yet. I feel like because so much of Ed's life as Blackbeard was built around that initial suffering, I feel like he's going to need, he's going to need a couple, like lots of, ooh, it's going to be an undertaking. <laughs> no, it is because he, he lies to himself about it. And to us, the audience, because earlier on in the season, you know, after he opens up to Steed about that, he says, you know, I haven't killed anyone since I killed my father. I just maim them terribly or mm -hmm. scare them or whatever. But then later, I don't remember if it's Calico Jack or Izzy Hands. One of them tells about a time where he burned a Calico ship down. Jack. It's Calico yes. Jack. Yep. And he's like, well, the fire killed them. I didn't do it. So he's separated himself from reality. From his accountability to these different decisions that yes. he's made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Gotta face the music. <laughs> this might be a good place because we're right around an hour recording time. Maybe not an hour in episode time after an edit. But I know we've, we've expressed a lot of the thoughts that we have about our flag means death. And we want to hear some thoughts about our flag means death. If you want to yeah. extend the invitation, Larissa. Of course. So I so enjoy having this space to be able to come together and talk about media. And listener, you too are invited to submit pieces of writing you have about Our Flag Means Death or other, other shows, other media that you're engaged with. You can send them for a chance to be featured in our blog community. Please email your submission or your pitch to info at storytelling-breakdown.com. You can also read current blog posts, including my upcoming Buttons Appreciation post. I haven't decided what I'm going to name it, but it's going to exist, so buckle up. And you can like us on Facebook and Instagram at Storytelling Breakdown. And so there's some information to help you feel invited over to join and connect with our community. And I can pivot, if you'd like, to share, while we know piratey information as it relates to Our Flag Means Death, we also have some general pirate film information to compare it to, or do you want to go into the game? Let's do some of the, the pirate history first, because again, like it feels like it does feel like the genre was going nowhere fast until we got Pirates of the Caribbean. Well, that's what I think is so interesting about Our Flag Means Death. It is like the show right now. It's super popular. It's been top of the charts for like six weeks, correct? Yes, yes. Which TV shows are a bit harder to track their popularity like movies it's a lot easier because you're gonna be like oh just look at box office numbers like mm -hmm. did it make a lot of money then it was popular what i think is most interesting about this is it has remained the top tv show even since moon knight came out on disney plus so the, even the juggernaut that is marvel studios has not been able to knock our flag means death out of the top spot lately which is very interesting and Disney will get their turn in the sun when Thor Love and Thunder comes out because they will also benefit from the artistic craft of Taika Waititi. And I said this before we got on the mics that he's on a trajectory right now to probably be hailed as one of the best storytellers of the 21st century. 
he keeps Good at it, the way he's been going. Goodness, yeah. So the pirate genre has traditionally, at least in our lifetime, been considered a cursed genre of filmmaking. I love that that has happened for pirates. Good for them. It was seen as basically just a way to bankrupt your studio. Ooh. Uh, but they started out being really popular. So the first big pirate film was 1926's The Black Pirate, starring Douglas Fairbanks Sr. It was a silent film, black and white, big swashbuckling adventure. It's the first one where a pirate sliding down the sail and like stabbing his sword or knife into it to like prevent him from falling came from that. That's cool. The Mythbusters tested it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't work. You can't actually do it in real life. (laughs) (laughs) The next sort of big important one was 1935's Captain Blood starring Errol Flynn, who Errol Flynn kind of became the poster boy for the pirate adventure genre. I'm pretty sure he also played Robin Hood. But he he was like the big swashbuckling The Indiana Jones of his time. Yes. Which, given the timing, was the starting point for Indiana Jones. Like, this is the pulp adventure era that inspired what we eventually got. And pirate movies maintained their popularity up through the 1960s, but after that, they kind of fell off. So, I counted. This is a rough estimate. But from 1926, uh, when the Black Pirate came out, to 1969, around 120 pirate films were made. So that's about 40 years there. From 1970 to our current year, 2022, only 70 pirate films oh, have been Oh, not what I would have predicted. Which is a decade more. And then a bunch but less. But about 50 films less. So the popularity of the pirate genre drastically fell off. Do you think we're going to get a pirate renaissance in response to the success of Our Flag Means Death? Do you think studio execs will misunderstand what made the show work? I think the pirate renaissance came in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. That makes more sense. Which we'll get to. But I, mean, I think we'll get maybe more small-scale pirate projects. I don't know. We'll have to see. Spoof movies on the genre became popular pretty quickly. So the genre tropes were established very early on. In 1944, Bob Hope starred in The Princess and the Pirate. And then in 1946, just two years later, The Three Stooges starred in The Three Little Pirates. And both of those were like comedy spoof movies. Through the 1960s, pirate movies did well enough to be a staple genre, but after that they started to fall off. In uh, 1983, there was a movie called Yellowbeard, written and starring Monty Python's Graham Chapman. King Arthur. For yes, the visual he's the one who plays King Holy Arthur Grail, yeah. in Holy Grail. It was a total failure, both commercially and critically. It starred other Monty Python alums, John Cleese and Eric Idle. Both described it as one of the six worst films ever made Ooh. and the worst film they ever worked on. I find it fascinating that they said one of the sixth. Like, they had five others on their list already. John Cleese certainly would. Yes. I think his initial soundbite was, it's the worst movie ever made, and then he clarified it later, saying it's one of the six worst movies ever made. That's funny. They were, you know, dying in popularity, but then there was like a seven, eight-year period where they kind of imploded the genre, and that's when it became cursed. And that started in 1995 with Cutthroat Island, which lost over $80 million. Oh, boy. And You really go all in when you make a pirate thing. You go There's all in. There's no playing in. around financially. Because, yeah, all the sets and costumes and everything costs a lot. That Cutthroat Island hold, held the Guinness World Record from one of the biggest like financial movie failures ever for a long time. Then in 2002, Treasure Planet also lost over $80 million for Disney. 
followed up. I didn't realize up. that about that movie. Yes, Because it it's was... so beloved by fans, isn't it? Yeah. Treasure Planet and Sinbad, which in 2003 DreamWorks made and lost them $125 million and actually shuttered DreamWorks' traditional animation studio. So they have not done a traditional 2D animation movie since then because that movie lost so much money. What a legacy. And then in 2003, Peter Pan, which I remember seeing, my grandfather took me to it. It was weird. I didn't like it. Jason Isaacs is Captain Hook, which on paper is perfect casting. Yes. I just remember it being very weird. I didn't like it. But that lost $70 million. And then there was another Peter Pan movie made much later. I think that was 2013 that also lost a bunch of money. There's this interesting Wikipedia page, which is the biggest box office failures of all time. Five of those movies on that list are pirate movies. Wow. Cursed indeed. Yes. So no one wanted to make anything pirate related until... The Pirates of the Caribbean came out, which was also Has 2003. Curse in the title with Curse of the Black Pearl. Uh, and and that so kind good. of saved the genre, so to speak. In total, the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise has grossed $4.5 worldwide. Dang. Is the 14th highest grossing film series ever. And is the first film franchise to produce two or more films that each grossed over $1 billion. That would be the second one, Dead Man's Chest, and the fourth one, on Stranger Tides. Wow. No film franchise had done that before. I'm so curious to know what the meetings at Disney were like prior to approving the project. Because I imagine the budget had to be bonkers to produce what Curse of the Black Pearl looks like. And then to say, you know what? This is going to work. And then it did. Especially after Treasure Planet. Because yeah. that was one of their biggest like commercial failures ever. So to have the the guts to be like, all right, yes, we will, we're gonna go back to this well that has burned us in the past. Well, and they're also, I mean, betting on, I mean, Johnny Depp. It's arguably the character now he's best known for, and Orlando Bloom, who, when we talked about Kingdom of Heaven, I mean, name a bigger movie star than Orlando Bloom in the early two thousand aughts. I mean, the yeah. only person. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, Lord Pirates of the, the Caribbean. Uh-huh. Uh, and can you have him right there in the mix as well? And just because like the only comparison that even comes close is like Harrison Ford in the early 80s. It's just crazy how much how many big projects he was in. And yeah, I mean, Curse, and Curse of the Black Pearl still holds up. It's still an immensely fun watch. I agree. You best start believing in ghost stories, Miss Turner. You're in one. <laughs> Jeffrey Rush is so good in that. So that's films. In regards to TV shows, I know a lot less about TV shows that came, you know, before the early 2000s. I know there was one a number of years ago that got canceled after one season called Crossbones, which starred John Malkovich as Blackbeard, who had faked his own death and is like living, you know, on an island hidden somewhere, running his own little pirate kingdom. And then Black Sails on Stars is a mix of fiction and real history. It follows the events of the crew of the Hispaniola from Treasure Island before Treasure Island. Hmm. But there are real pirates intermixed as well. Mm. Which I think is also like another bedrock piece of media, both as a film version and then as an animation recreation with Treasure Planet. And then the fact that I think when I, around probably prior to when I wrote this research paper and after I had seen Pirates of the Caribbean, I think that was when I sought out and read Treasure Island. 
there are so many ways in which we were around for the rebirth <laughs> in getting to experience pirate films in a way that previous generations just wouldn't have, especially in our formative years. Well, speaking of treasure, both in the titles of the names <laughs> and in the amount of money earned or lost, I have a surprise for you guys. Oh. I got gold chocolate coins for us because we're going to play a game. And part of the game is part of the way how this game's going to work. There's not going to be any winner and there's nobody who's going to get more or less chocolate coins than the person next to him because there's a wage that is being shared among the crew members participating I like in it. the true mm -hmm. spirit of the show. And so they are the, the chocolate coins, the chocolate dollars. Two, three, this is four. This is now like a cross between Five. our fourth episode ever when we learned to play Young Jedi with John Caulfield and like every D&D &D night because Larissa is bringing snacks. <laughs> I do love snacks. What we're going to do is imagine I am going to name a modern day situation. We can all agree that while a pirate's life is for some, as in the song, A Pirate's Life for Me, and pirate life can be challenging, being a person in any era can be challenging. And what I would like to invite the two of you to do is to imagine. So just as members of the crew on the ship of the revenge are in these different social situations or these there's something that they're running away from right they don't fit the background that they're in i'm going to take that another level not only will they be out of place they're going to be out of time we're taking the ship of the revenge and launching it into the 21st century and you have this crew of pirates and you also have a list of chores to complete and so it is up to you as I list a chore to tell me who you think would be best suited or who, who you would call upon to help with such chore and why. And because the show takes place in 1717, you're going to get seven seconds to answer. So the pressure's on. <laughs> and you, there's no way to win or lose. It's all about participation. Another part of why I'm so eager to engage with this as a game is that Our Flag Means Death has really reawakened the part of me that so deeply enjoys engaging with media as a fan and every time even though there's so many thoughtful things you can read or think about or ponder as it relates to our flag means death most of the time i find myself just sitting there admiring characters like buttons with nothing nothing interesting to say just strongly <laughs> pro <laughs> so ben Okay, wait, who wants to go first? Do you want rock, paper, scissors for it, or you want me to just pick? We can rock, paper, scissors Or given it. the scenario we're in, it might make sense to flip a coin. Oh, that's genius. Okay. Call it. Heads. It is heads. Good old Kennedy. <laughs> so that means you get to pick. Do you want to go first, Caleb, or you want Ben to go first? I will go first. All right. Okay, you have seven <laughs> seconds, Caleb. After I name the scenario. The scenario is you have an issue with an item on your account and you have to call customer service. Who do you put in charge of this task? Uh, I put Lucius in charge of this task. Ooh, okay, well within the seven second timeline. So, do you feel prepared, Caleb, in seven seconds? Why Lucius? Uh, he can read. None of the other <laughs> ones can read. So I need him <laughs> to be able to solve this problem because he can read my account. That's a great idea. He can read your bill statement. Okay, Ben, it is your turn. Are you ready, Ben? Mm -hmm. So the scenario is you haven't done your laundry in three weeks 
and you need someone who can figure out how to use these modern appliances to help you clean your clothing. Who do you choose? I think at that point, I'm going to go with Steed. Oh, that's a great choice. Explain why. Because he does prove to be maybe the best problem solver of the crew and would have maybe the best background knowledge to just look at something and have a theory about how it works, even if he isn't 100% on it. He's got real can-do attitude. Yeah. He was also, I'm carrying over, he was also going to be my answer for the customer service one, because I feel like he's one of those types of people who would not only solve the problem, but end up on the phone with the person for two hours and know everything about their life that they were willing to convey in that time. Oh, (laughs) yeah. He's a relationship builder, that Steed. As is Lucius. Yes. Yeah. Steed also knows his fabrics. Like, he knows his different types of clothes. And I almost went with... We John because of the garment element because I think it was he used to make dresses or you could have gone with Frenchie for being a seamstress. But as soon as you threw in the machinery, <laughs> I don't think either one of them would work out too well with that one. Okay, Caleb, it's back to you. I'm ready. Next, you are trying to boost your social media presence, but you need some help. You ask one of the crew of the Revenge to help you make a TikTok, but who? Ooh, ooh, that's tough. I'm gonna go with Frenchie. Ah. Because he's musically inclined, yes. and TikTok is very musical, so I feel like he could be playing something in the background, and I could be doing whatever in the foreground. That sounds perfect, just like in that shot that Ben pointed out. Mm-hmm. I'm also now trying to remember the character who plays all of the Portuguese David Bowie tunes in The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Okay, Ben, are you ready? Yes. So, the next one is quite simple, you would think, but you need help changing a light bulb. Who do you ask? I think once again, we're going with Steed because uh, it would be be just because of, again, having an understanding of the world, having an understanding of inventors, but like anything mechanical, he's going to be coming into it with more knowledge than, oh, what did Frenchie say about cats? Just the fact that they have (laughs) have knives in their hands. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. That's. That is. You need someone who's, I agree with your reasoning for Steed. I can see how that's possible. I unsurprisingly would choose buttons <laughs> not because i think he'd be good at it but because i would want to see him react to screwing in a light bulb and then turning it on the lamp i think that would be so fun <laughs> i just think witchcraft that, yeah no because I'm, I'm realizing to what extent like frenchie's approach like he's not the baseline he's the average yeah so yes. there would be <laughs> There would be pirates that would handle that better and worse and significantly worse. Oh, gosh. Now it's tossed over to you, Caleb. I'm ready. Your situation is you need to change the oil in your car. Okay. Who do you choose? Oh. Um, I think I pick Roach. You were right on time with that. Ooh, close. Uh, I pick Roach. I turned it off. Because he this kind of he's used to dealing with fluids, because he cooks and he's oh, the yeah. ship's doctor. He seems like he's resilient too. Like he's gonna find a way to get this job done without too much drama. Just like when he goes to chop off Lucius's finger, he's like, "Huh, eh, just another day in the life." Yeah. So I mean, changing your oil is messy, and he will be fine with that. He won't get like squeamish. Hmm. Good call. Ben, are you ready? Yes. Here's your situation. You're unwell and you need someone to cover for you in a Zoom meeting, a business meeting via Zoom. Who do you ask to represent you in this space? Blackbeard. 
Oh, that's a good choice. How come? Because I feel like whether he's rolling for persuasion or intimidation, he's going to be successful. (laughs) (laughs) The items on your agenda would be met. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. Good choice. Just picturing Taika Waititi with a full beard just being, this could have been an email. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Caleb, for you. Do you have a dog? I know you have cats. Yes, yes you do. You I also do also have, have a dog, dog who yes. is a beagle. Basset mix. Basset mix. So, Caleb, imagine as you do that you have a dog, but you're going to be out of town and you need to entrust your dog's well-being with one of these pirates. Who do you choose? I pick Fane because Fane already had a dog <laughs> that he had to put down because Blackbeard wanted him to. So I know that Fane <laughs> will be happy and just grateful for the chance to interact with a dog again. That's a great answer. I didn't think about that. That's genius. <laughs> Good choice. Okay, Ben. So here's who went first. Caleb went first. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Ben, you're going to get one, and then you both will get the last one. In this next one, Ben, it's going to be regular rules. Okay. So, Ben, your task is that you need to request a pirate's assistance in taking your niece to the zoo who do you entrust with you and a small child probably wee john just because no one's gonna mess with wee john out of context and also he's very unassuming and not so scary i'm also yeah. probably projecting the hodor element onto him <laughs> True. So, but even go. when he's a cat and he's supposed to be spooky <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> he's trying his best and he's just fun mm-hmm Okay, so here's how this is going to come to a close. I'm going to ask you a question that is very specific to what's happening right now, and then you're going to provide me two answers each. One will be a crew member from the Revenge, and one will be a pirate from any piece of media, history, or imagination that you would like to offer. And the task, and okay, and there's no time limit, because even though it's the lightning round, I just trust that you all have the energy to answer me as quickly as you feel compelled to do so. Thank you. I appreciate that, Caleb. So the prompt is, let's imagine one of us is unable, something happens, and you are the only remaining member of the Storytelling Breakdown crew available for a recording session today. But somehow you have connections with a series of pirates. Who do you call to come help you co-host? Are we ma- four hosts or just No, one just, more host? just you and this other pirates. You're going to be going it solo, you and them. Alawande. Obviously, I would love to have a conversation with him about, I don't know, anything. I mean, just for the, again, entertaining in a vacuum buttons. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I would like to pick that man's brain. Like, what's happening? Buttons would be a a very high energy episode. (laughs) Uh, You wouldn't know what you were going to get. No. Next thing you know, he might start and saying that he's going to name every sea creature there is. (laughs) And then it's just an hour and a half. Of every sea creature. <laughs> That's what the episode is now. That's funny. And then other media. Yes. If you could not choose a crew member of the Revenge, but you had to pick a pirate. Hmm. <laughs> I'm going with Teague Sparrow because it's Keith Richards. Ooh. Yeah, that would be fun. And then I'm going to go with Long John Silver from Up at Treasure Island because <laughs> he's played by Tim Curry. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> So we could chat, and then we could sing a little bit. Ooh, we could have a little show. A variety. 
variety show. Both such good answers. You are lovely participants. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for making the game. Yeah. yeah Please enjoy you. your chocolate dollars as compensation for your efforts. I think I heard David Jenkins, and I could be completely wrong because I've just been casually listening to so many interviews in response to this, mention how the structure moves like if you imagine that there's more seasons to come, it might move like a typical romantic comedy. And this is in the part, Where like the tumultuous up. time, yeah. yeah, before it comes back together. And so I hope, I hope to be able to explore more characters in the future. And I'm so thankful for how much humanity is in the story that we've received so far. And I just feel so drawn. I know I mentioned Buttons a lot, and it's true that he has a special place in my heart, and he always will. But each member of The Revenge and of the show itself has so much to offer. And I, in addition to the relationship between Ed and Seed, I'm so interested to explore everyone's dynamics over future episodes, should we get them, I dearly hope. I think the thing that resonates most with me about the show is that it's very honest about everything that it is, particularly in the fact that there's no queer baiting. Like, it is straight up just an explicit queer romance. And that's not shied away from. That's not, you know, put in the background or, you know, only hinted at throughout the show and then vaguely wrapped up in the finale. Like, it's there the entire time, which I really, really appreciate. I agree. I think honesty is a really well-chosen word for that that honesty is probably why it's resonated so much with audiences you know especially after the pandemic and just the different types of media we've gotten over the past decade or so has been very like franchise focused and this is just a simple honest story about gay pirates and who doesn't want that obviously we are three out of four of the hosts of storytelling breakdown and uh, steven is not uh, in the studio slash home office with us today uh but we are of course going to go out on a note from the ragtag bunch which for an entire episode about pirates what could be better than good ale (laughs) (laughs) oh good ale thou art my darling thou art my joy both night and morning ah oh dear it is of good ale to you i sing and to good ale I'll always cling. I like my mug filled to the brim, and I'll drink all you'd like to bring. Oh, good ale, thou art my darling, thou art my joy, both night and morning. It is you that helps me with my work, and from a task I'll never shirk. While I can get a good homebrew and better than one pint, I'd like to. Oh, Grail, thou art my darling, thou art my joy, both night and morning. I love you in the early morn, I love you in daylight, dark or dawn. And when I'm weary, worn, or spent, I'll turn the tap and ease the vent. Oh, thou art my darling, thou art my joy, both night and morning. It is you that makes my friends my foes, it is you that makes me wear old clothes. (laughs) 
But since you come so near my nose, it's up you comes and down you goes. Oh, good ale, thou art my darling, thou art my joy, both night and morning. And if all my friends from Adam's race was to meet me here all in this place, I could part from all without one fear before I part from my here, here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, But you, for all that, I'll forgive, and I'll drink strong ale as a Massive spoiler alert for The Suicide Squad and The Peacemaker Show on HBO Max if you haven't already had the chance to watch it. Watch it, come back to this conversation. It is appropriate that we go from listening to a song from the Ragtag Bunch to having a conversation with one of its members. I am going to welcome to our studio today, Caleb Linnemeyer. Caleb, thank you so much for being here. Ben, do you really do you really want to taste it? <laughs> now, you, for Brad. those who have seen the show, that is uh, going to... S- give away immediately what the topic that we're going to cover is that would be being peacemaker we'll get to him though first uh just a little bit of background i believe i met you through another guest we've had on the podcast that being lucas gerke yep and uh a wonderful circle of friends that i became a part of in our college days uh that also included Caleb Meyer and Autumn Schultz and others who have been on the podcast. It just kept expanding, uh-huh. ended up including Steven and yep. whatnot. Yeah, absolutely. And then we've talked about on the podcast playing RPGs and whether that was Fade or D&D, and those were also circles where we intersected. You have been a player at many a table where I have either also been a player or been the DM, and it has been a blast. And now here we are once again playing D&D together, though that is not the focus of the conversation but also still avid consumers of comic books and comic book-based media. And even though we did an entire episode dedicated to James Gunn earlier this season, we really didn't cover Peacemaker, which is what you and I get to do today. Oh, joy. I get to dive right into that. Let's start with the movie, because I think for a lot of people, the Suicide Squad film was the recognizable starting point in the first time that we were seeing him sure. in yeah. live action and where the for a lot of people it was... Who is this character? We don't know who he is. We haven't seen him before. Why is John Cena still wearing the costume when he's doing press for the movie? <laughs> There's just so many layers there. Let's start with that film. What were your thoughts on The Suicide Squad when it came out and then Cena's portrayal of Peacemaker in particular? Well, I'm an avid comic reader, and I had never even heard of Peacemaker until Suicide Squad. But knowing that John Cena was going to be playing him, I was all on board. Like, heck yeah. Let's see what he's got and yeah. was not disappointed at all. He is an awesome foil for the Rick Flag character. And for Bloodsport too. Yeah. And Bloodsport being thrown in the mix. 
totally would have thought that Idris Elba would be a bronze tiger, but very, very okay with the Bloodsport character. There was one observation that I heard about the film that makes total sense, and that was just, you know there was an earlier draft of the movie where the Bloodsport character was just dead shot, and then they crossed that off and wrote in Bloodsport <laughs> so that there's still a, a window to get Will Smith back later. Right. And you have, because I mean, like whether it's the interaction with his daughter, the being in the movie, or just, just and then his entire skill set, you didn't have to change much to move that character from uh, from yeah. Deadshot to Bloodsport. I love the way they did Bloodsport's like whole gadgetry, because mm-hmm. his powers in the comics, he can teleport weaponry to him. And so being on the Suicide Squad, he has access to Amanda Waller's vault. And so he can just teleport whatever weapons he wants into his hands and they incorporated that perfectly with him taking from his armor and just building his weapons off perfect absolutely perfect and then that's contrasted with red short sleeve shirt blue pants large helmet enormous revolver-esque gun and we have peacemaker what a character in seeing how many characters again and i think i may i probably said this when we did the james gunn episode when you saw how many actors and characters were in the movie, you knew that it was just going to be carnage throughout, at least initially, not expecting, spoiler alert, so many characters to die within the first 10 minutes of the movie. There were rumors of that, and people were like, no, that's not the church. It happens. It happens. <laughs> and so the only survivors of the cannon fodder team are Flag, Harley, and Weasel. And then you have the B team where we get Bloodsport and Peacemaker along with Ratcatcher, King Shark, and Polka Dot Man. And we talked about, and I talked about this when I wrote up uh, a post on the Storytelling Breakdown blog about the Suicide Squad. It's interesting to see whose stories the creators are interested in telling. Right. Because James Gunn maybe wasn't necessarily as interested in keeping around Captain Boomerang, but he was actively interested in doing amazing things with Polka Dot Man and having... Ratcatcher be the heart of the movie and throwing a character like Peacemaker into the fold, giving him some interesting things to do. And then COVID gave him the opportunity to write a series. And there were a lot of people who were like, what is this movie maker doing making a TV series? But having seen the series multiple times already, like his formula for making movies translates perfectly to TV show. I don't know how I'm not a filmmaker, but it's just, perfect how he was able to take the skills he has he's obviously a fantastic movie maker he was able to take all those skills and perfectly made a tv show and it's his first tv show ever and i hope he keeps trying to do it because that formula works perfectly oh my goodness yeah i know you have done a much better job of keeping up with current dc comics than i have where do we see some of what we saw with the suicide squad film reflected in the comics So actually, earlier this year, very start of 2022, there was a big crossover event between a couple titles called War for Earth 3, where Amanda Waller's decided that Earth Zero, the main Earth in the multiverse, is too screwed up, it's not worth her time, it's doomed. So she goes to Earth 3, which is known for having like Owlman, Ultraman, Power Ring, Superwoman, like that's the crime syndicate. syndicate. And... She is like, this is an Earth that I can fix. And so she's got a couple of operatives that she brings with her, one of which is Peacemaker. He is on that team. 
and they have to wear special suits to keep their bodies from because the vibrations earth vibrations are different so whatever but rick flag manages to recruit peacemaker to turn against amanda waller because at this point rick flag he's gone completely rogue and so it's really interesting compared to the movie where they're at odds in the comics they start off at odds against each other but end up teaming up it just i think that there are moments in the movie where you can see how they work perfectly in sync and end up against each other and in the comics they did the opposite they are completely against each other peacemakers initially tasked with hunting down rick flag finds rick flag is recruited by rick flag it's complete opposite and i don't think it was meant to be the opposite of the movie but i just found that really interesting that they took it that complete opposite route their dynamic across different media is very interesting because a few years ago at indiana comic-con when i got to meet adam baldwin i told him he was my favorite rick flag i enjoy his version from justice league unlimited so much and so you see him in varying degrees of total alliance with waller right and then i still even on rewatch, I felt like his turn in the third act of the Suicide Squad was quick. Yeah. I mean, granted, he's he was on the cannon fodder team, which probably didn't sit well with him, but right. it still felt abrupt. But then it gave us the opportunity to kind of go, okay, wait a minute. Well, who's further in the extreme than Rick Flagg? And we have Peacemaker. Right, yeah. That always creates an interesting dynamic. Like anytime you kind of have, where you have a character that the audience might identify with that's kind of sitting in the middle of two extremes. Because when you have someone like Bloodsport who just straight up doesn't want to be there, right. you have someone like Flag who's tasked with leading the team and has loyalty to Waller to a point, right. and then you have Peacemaker. Like, it almost feels like the a lot of people give credit to the second X-Men film for doing a good job of like showcasing, okay, we've got Magneto as one extreme, right. Charles Xavier in the middle, yeah. and then Stryker as the other extreme. So it right. kind of puts rick flag in the middle which if rick flags in the middle of any kind of a spectrum that is a terrifying spectrum absolutely one of the most jarring moments especially on first watch of the suicide squad is when peacemaker kills rick flag right but then when we got the tv show out of it that mattered he's definitely still coping with that doing his facial exercises facial <laughs> exercises gosh i was not ready for how hilarious his dynamic with vigilante was going to be and then oh my goodness well the thing is this is not vigilante from the comics no there are three different vigilantes to the best of my knowledge there are three different men who have held the title the moniker of vigilante none of them are a derp an absolute <laughs> the freddy stroma interpretation that we got in the show but it works perfectly he is exactly what the show needed to be best friends with vigilante that's the type of character you need for that funny tidbit from the comics there is a point where christopher smith he is rich uh and so he has like a, a maid who's like doing cleaning and stuff around his mansion he is on the couch crying talking about how crap his life is and she's just like i'm sorry you paid me to clean i'm not your psychologist i'm or I'm, I'm not your therapist i'm so sorry but he's just sitting there crying like that's actually who the character is in the original 88 comics they brought that into the show they did such a good job of not only finding ways to reference at this point older 
source material, but also throw in a new and interesting supporting cast who, if he had interaction with them in the comics, I don't have as much familiarity with characters like Amelia Harcourt and others who ended up on his team in the show. But it's just such an amazing dynamic. It, of course, we should expect that from James Gunn because right. whether we're talking about Scooby-Doo or Guardians of the Galaxy, he writes an ensemble so well. Right. So something really interesting, uh, at the very end, like the last shot of the show, he's sitting on his porch. On one side, you have Eagly, right? The other side is his dad, the ghost of his dad, sitting there next to him. In the very, very first Peacemaker comic, 1988, which is right after DC got the rights from Charlton Comics, he is laying siege on a beach because there is a rich person resort whatever that is being attacked by mercenaries peacemaker swoops in on the the peace copter or whatever he called it uh and he's mowing him down and you don't see who he's talking to but he tells wolf take the the controls and lay down cover fire wolf's like nah you got it i don't need to give you cover fire peacemaker jumps down kills everyone as peacemaker does and then gets back and uses a grappling hook or something to get back up to the copter he's like i could have died out there wolf and then it pants the back and there's no one in the seat behind him but you still see the the text bubble i knew you could do it i was just testing you i was making sure you were still on your a game you find out a few pages later wolf was his father who trained him oh my goodness was a straight up nazi party because this is 88 so world war ii nazi trained christopher smith because he did not like the way the world war ii resolved and so he was training his son to be basically like the next white dragon but Christopher Smith did end up doing his own thing with Peacemaker, but still is seeing his father's ghost just kind of heckling him, telling him, you're not good enough. So I fully expect season two to continue to see his father because that is, again, from the OG comics to see the ghost of his father heckling him the whole time. Wow. You see, that's especially just given the challenges and the conversations and the dynamics of the last several years it feels like what was included in the show, especially as it relates to his arc with his dad, could have been something new coming from James Gunn, but it's what is old is new again and still works very well, especially with some of the themes that the show tackles. Very heavy stuff, but he handled it masterfully. Oh, yeah. And it it does such a good job, and you and I were talking about this before we got on the mics. In the movie, he gets to just be an unrepentant Right. And then... The TV show surrounds him with people who are actually going to call him on it. Right. Make him actually look at himself and change. And uh, like I had mentioned with the se- uh, the maid telling him, I'm not your therapist. Like that does make him actually take that look at himself. Oh, maybe I do need to maybe not be as much of a jerk or something, you know? Mm-hmm. That show could not have surrounded him with a more perfect supporting cast. Oh, absolutely. Because you have Harcourt who... Of course, stereotypically, he's going to be interested in. Yeah. yeah. And she is having none None of it. it. And then you have John Economos, who is a polar opposite to him in so many ways, but they end up finding a lot of common ground and seeing... And they they end up growing on each other in ways that you wouldn't expect. Oh, yeah. Bringing back another name that you've had on the show, Casey Mm -hmm. and I watched the show together, and we agree that... He's probably one of our favorite characters for the oh, show. Oh, yeah. No, well, Economos, 
is great. <laughs> if you if you have an average white dude with glasses trying to keep up with the superhero team, yeah, you know, I, he's of course the one I can identify with the most as well. I love John. Absolutely, Conway's. and he gets. The most ridiculous kill of the show. Oh my word! We driving were a cheering. chainsaw through an ape's chest. We were cheering. We were standing up. Yes, get it, John. <laughs> oh my word! Oh my god! And we have Adebayo in the mix, who is also going to challenge a lot of beliefs that Peacemaker Absolutely. has grown up with. It's just so wonderful to well, and again, it's not just. And this is something we also talked about on the James Gunn episode of the podcast, uh, which, again, the James Gunn love bomb spectacular. If you scroll down a little bit wherever you get your podcast or storytelling breakdown, you'll probably find it. And we talked about how not only does James Gunn write the ensemble well, he writes the found family well. She plays perfectly into that whole found family. She is the heart of the group. She is what ultimately, like, brings them all together to actually, like, work as a cohesive unit while keeping Peacemaker in check. <laughs> I will say this. James Gunn does not shy away from the alien and the unusual. And then when you give him a property that can have an R rating, you oh, get gosh. the Suicide Squad and Starro, and you get Peacemaker and the Butterflies. And it's weird, it's wild, and somehow it works. It worked wonderfully. I think one of my favorite moments, like when it comes to like, peacemaker taking on the butterflies the x-ray helmet when he and Adebayo are oh walking, that was such a cool moment walking yeah. into the the farm and he just starts blasting she's like i thought we were doing the stealth i can i can see their heads i can see the aliens x-ray vision so and the episode that ended where she saw one inside of Mern, that oh was terrifying fun fact peacemaker's helmet in the comics actually does certain different things i don't think it has quite as many uh utilities as it does in the show but like it definitely has like an almost death beam sort of thing does x-ray uh, it does levitate but they're all add-ons for one helmet and he doesn't have multiple different ones i think that was just much more comedic take we all associate the superhero arsenal with batman and so when you have it with other characters it's going to seem derivative in small doses but you can just make it seem absurd if there's clearly a helmet for every occasion. Right. And then he just has to carry around the duffel bag filled with the helmets. <laughs> there are just so many just little moments here or there from like, oh, it's actually a tracking device and then attaching it to a raccoon. And the next time we see Peacemaker, he's visibly mm. torn up after having to try to get a raccoon in the wild to cooperate. Little moments here or there that just lean into the show's strengths. You knew that the butterfly situation was about to go wrong in a big way as soon as the glass jar with the captured butterfly ended up in the hands of Vigilante. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> then, of course, he falls, glass breaks, it gets into the detective, and then yep. from there, well, yep. here we go. We're ramping up towards our finale. I was not prepared for and then was just absolutely splitting aside when they gave us Flash and Aquaman. Oh, my gosh. Who, like, of course... You know, you know Momoa and Miller were down for that. Oh, absolutely. They probably pitched it. <laughs> they are two of the most outspoken Justice League members trying to get everyone, like, supporting the Snyder Cut. Uh, you'll see them at Comic-Cons the most out of any of the other Justice League members. Like, they are the most on board with the Snyderverse. So, of 
course they had to be there. With the way the show plays out, and I was glad to hear you and I both followed through on what James Gunn originally intended with the credits, you don't skip the dance number. Never. Oh my goodness. Never. You it's never funny skip. every time. And it has some layers to it that get more interesting as you uh, watch through the show. Yeah, so with the butterflies, when they take over a person, they just have dead face. Like, they, at one point, they make a joke about them trying to smile. Like, mm, probably not. The, the the smile is just creepy. They don't know how to use these muscle groups. No. Yeah. And so, like, when they're dancing at the dance number, they're just deadpan. Deadpan doing all these ridiculous dance moves. Kind of parallels to the butterflies taking over you had mentioned uh to me earlier like they're dancing in sync because they're being brainwashed like definitely some layers probably the greatest little fun fact i think about this whole dance number thing they filmed it halfway through shooting which is not normal for a television production but there were some times when they were like choreographing john cena wasn't actually able to be there so who who would they have stand in for him well Alan Tudyk, of course, <laughs> because his wife was the choreographer for the dance. And there you go. Caleb Linnemeyer, thank you so much for joining us on the Storytelling Breakdown podcast. I always enjoy hearing from you what is going on in the world of comics, and especially now that we're in a place where more and more of the comic book properties are getting interesting. Like in 2022 alone, we have had Peacemaker, The Batman, and Multiverse of Madness, and every single one of those has blown by my expectations oh my gosh yeah this past year of comics too i have not read a single comic that i did not like it's awesome to be a comic book fan nowadays because you got the tv shows and movies you got the comics no disappointments whatsoever thanks for having me ben thanks for letting me geek out thank you for listening please leave a review give a rating subscribe and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts it all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community. Check out the SB blog, past episodes, reach out, leave a comment, send a message, especially for the spotlights. We reach out to friends and people in our various social orbits for episode and spotlight content, but it's so cool when you come to us too. You can find Storytelling Breakdown on Facebook and Instagram. Reach out to our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com. There's a project on the horizon that should make it so we have not one, not two, but three episodes coming to you in June. Stephen and I will be bringing you insights into our experiences with Dungeons & Dragons. We will have two campaign diaries dropping in June, one from Stephen's group playing Curse of Strahd, and the other focused on the group that I am DMing. I am playing in Stephen's game, Larissa and Stephen are playing in my game. We are looking forward to sharing these conversations and more with you next month. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown.
WSP, Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs>